perhaps most challenging of all, we were going two levels below ground for the parking garage for Whole Foods. And then I think it was pretty soon thereafter, once we had kind of dug out two levels, Hurricane Harvey hit. Wow. And so we essentially served as the detention pond for Midtown Houston and filled up like like a bathtub, a 90,000 foot, two, two level bathtub with water. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we have the pleasure of hosting Philip Morgan, Executive Vice President at the Morgan Group. Morgan Group is a vertically integrated third-generation family business that invests in multifamily housing. In its history, Morgan has built or acquired over $3 billion of multifamily assets consisting of over 20,000 units. Philip Morgan, who we interview here today, is responsible for overseeing Morgan's growth and development activities in Texas, Colorado, and Arizona, as well as spearheading the company's growing acquisitions business. Prior to joining Morgan, Philip co-founded Blue Root Partners to take advantage of opportunities acquiring distressed real estate assets in Texas. We discuss this experience in detail as well as how it relates to potential post-COVID opportunities that may arise in the coming months. We touch on the specific markets that Morgan is in and dissect the details as to why this is the case. And we dive into one of their most recent and probably most complicated yet rewarding projects, Pearl Marketplace in Midtown Houston. There's a lot in this interview that I am certain you will find to be extremely valuable. So without further ado, here's today's guest, Philip Morgan. Welcome to the show, Philip. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for being on. How are things down in Houston? Things are good. You know, we're in week eight or so of the coronavirus pandemic and just I guess, acclimated with this new normal. So, but all's good, healthy and safe, most importantly, and, and just, just busy times right now, trying to figure yep. out all the change that's happening around us and adapt to it. For sure. It'll be interesting what happens next week once we start the second phase of the reopening. Hopefully things will keep flowing smoothly. I feel that the first phase has gone pretty well, at least in, in the short amount that we've been reopening here in Texas. Yeah, I hope you're right. I hope things keep going in the right direction. And certainly we need some good news and some good momentum. Yeah. Well, Philip, I'm very excited to have you here on the show. Can you you tell us a little bit about your background in real estate and the journey that you've been through to what you're doing today? Sure. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Houston and grew up around the multifamily business with our family's business. So always had an interest in it and never really the pressure to to kind of work for the family, but always was, you know, kind of around construction sites and, and multifamily properties growing up. I graduated in uh, 2009 from college up in Philadelphia at University of Pennsylvania. So I, uh, I, I feel for all the college graduates that are graduating in, in 2020 into, into a downturn. And during school, my focus was on real estate and didn't really know kind of where which direction I'd, I'd go into. I ended up moving back to Houston and briefly took a job in student housing and was, was really fortunate just to get a job kind of at that time. 
ultimately that role for one reason or another just didn't last very long. I just wasn't, you know, that the company wasn't really as active as I would have liked and a better opportunity came up. And so I ended up moving to New York and working for a distressed debt uh, fund that had gotten started through the last downturn, seeing that there was opportunity there. So I worked as a personal assistant, actually, was my first job working for the head of the fund, which was a a really good learning experience and turned into an analyst role. Um, So that was kind of my first jobs in, in, in the real estate market wasn't as close to the real estate, but it was a great experience, mostly on the finance side and underwriting opportunities. And so that was in your, I guess, your second job in up in New York. And what was the name of that company? So that was with CBRE Investors. CBRE. Okay. And so tell me a little bit about just briefly touching on your experience there about investing in distressed equity. I've, I know I've heard that term come up more recently in the last few weeks than in the last few years when I assume there was not much investing going on in distressed equity, or at least it wasn't as hot a topic as it is currently. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. So yeah, our focus was really mostly on the debt side of things, but maybe not too dissimilar from today. I think we're still seeing kind of what, what is going to unfold today. But, you know, then with the, the great financial crisis and the collapse towards the end, kind of leading up to that crash, underwriting standards had gotten poorer and poorer. And so when the market kind of fell apart, there were a lot of deals that kind of no longer made sense and there were too much debt on certain assets. And so with that happening, there was a dislocation in the, in the capital markets and there was a lot of you know lenders who were in trouble owners who were in trouble and so the thought was you know new new capital needed to come in in different situations and values were resetting and so we had raised money to basically go out and seek debt investment opportunities to kind of take advantage of it so we we were coming in kind of as pain was being felt or after pain had been felt and coming in with fresh capital while many other capital providers at the time were still kind of reeling or on the sidelines. So that was really the opportunity was that, you know, there was capital needs and a lot of, you know, historical capital providers weren't there. And so new ones that had capital raised were able to kind of step in and take advantage of those opportunities. And were you purchasing assets or were you sort of lending to the whoever owned the assets? Yeah, we we were lending to whoever owned the asset who needed to refinance. And in some cases, we were purchasing distressed debt. So if there was a, you know, a portfolio or a loan that a lender had, and they just needed to get it off their books and just wanted cash and didn't have the desire to kind of go through a foreclosure process or kind of manage their distressed uh, debt that they had, they would look to sell their loans. Okay. So we, we kind of come at it a few different directions, but either going into existing deals where debt was being sold at a discount, so maybe sold at 75 cents on the dollar, 50 cents on the dollar, or we were originating new loans when traditional lenders were no longer in the market. Okay. So when, we, when we're talking about distressed debt, is, is that debt where the borrowers had defaulted or where it looked like they were in the process of about going to default or is there no specific definition for what distressed debt means? 
No, that, that, that's right. Yeah, but basically the properties could no longer support the original loan amount that was in place. And so you're exactly right. There are either situations where the borrower was already in default or looking like it was going to be in default. But in, in any case, the debt was no longer worth the original par amount. Okay, excellent. So you went to that through that job with CBRE in New York, and then what was your next step after that? Yeah, so, so that job was really interesting and actually kind of led to the next opportunity for me. So a good friend of mine from college um, also was up in New York at the time, and he was working for a special servicer at the time. And basically, a special servicer, if you're familiar with commercial mortgage-backed securities or CMBS, as loans go bad, they get transferred from the master servicer to the special servicer. And so the special servicer, and I'm sure in times like these that we're in right now, the special servicers are about to be overwhelmed with loans that are going to be transferred over. And so the special servicer's job essentially is to maximize value for the, for the bondholders. And so, again, kind of basically first job out of college, good friend of mine, at 22 and 23, first job in the real world, real world was working for a special servicer. And so he was dealing with these distressed loans. We both had very little experience and he was trying to sell off these loans. And, you know, being, I think, the junior member of the team, he wasn't given the, the big, sexy, you know, 50 to $100 million loan in, in New York City. He was given the small balance loans and, and places that were hard to fly to. And so he was, he was giving given a tremendous opportunity to kind of see firsthand the distress happening and, and trying to work through it. And, you know, we were going to lunch pretty frequently and there were funds like ours that had raised hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars. And we couldn't go out and buy a $3 million loan or a $4 million loan. We needed to go buy pools of loans and put out bigger dollars. And so we got the idea that we should both leave our jobs and be trying to buy the types of deals that his firm was, was selling. So we took a, we were naive and, and took a leap of faith um, after many of these discussions and, and kind of figured we didn't have a ton to lose at the time, had, had no families or, or kids or anything, and decided to leave our jobs and see if we could go get our hands on a couple of these non-performing loans. How did it go? It went well. So we started working out of, out of my apartment in New York, and after a couple months, realized that we didn't need to live in New York City and pay rent in New York City to be to be doing this when we had just gotten rid of our incomes. So convinced him to to move down to Houston. Morgan Group was kind enough to to lend us some office space. So we set up shop and shared an office together and actually bought a couple of properties through essentially it was it was basically like eBay for properties. It's called auction.com. Okay. And I'm not sure if it's still around. But they had an auction, I think it was August of 2011, and we kind of underwrote all the, all the deals in that auction that were in Houston, and we ended up buying two assets at that auction. We bought a piece of land from a special servicer in Huntsville, Texas, okay. uh, that, we, that we still own on paper. Wow. It's, uh, it's worth more, but we're, you know, it's, I haven't done anything with it yet, so, so we'll see. And then we bought, the main thing we purchased, though, was a, uh, we bought the loan backing a 224-unit Class C apartment complex in Ailey, Texas. And how that second investment developed? 
you know, it, it worked out really well. We, we bought the loan. We were able to, in pretty short order, foreclose. I want to say we bought it at like 30 cents on the dollar for the original loan amount. It, it was kind of a stereotypical example of an asset that was over levered. It was about 50% occupied when we got it. And the prior owner had basically just stopped turning units and was just kind of keeping all the cash he could and not, not reinvesting back into the property. So we, we came in and essentially became a, a construction management firm and hired subcontractors to come repair the units and got the roof replaced and put in a playground and rebranded it. So we kind of went through that really having done it before, just kind of figured out how to do a value add. And it took us about a year or so to, to get it rehabbed and, and get it back leased up. And we ended up getting it to about low 90s kind of occupancy and, and got an off-market offer to sell it and, and sold it. So it ended up being a good deal. You know, in hindsight, we, we learned a lot about that project. The most important lesson was that timing is everything. And uh, we were just fortunate to be buying in 2011. Mm-hmm. You know, looking back on it too, we probably could have held it for several years longer and, and made more and more money. We're, we're just amazed at kind of what's happened with cap rates and what's happened with, with that type of property. But by the time we got that one into position where we felt like we were not going to, certainly not going to lose any investor's money to go out and acquire something in a similar condition as that was in it was going to cost us about twice as much. And so at the time, we were kind of comparing everything to what we had paid for it. And we thought everything was just way overvalued in 2012. And I think we all know now that nothing was overvalued in 2012. In 2012, yes. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we, we sold that. And then it was good timing. Uh, while we were doing that, we were kind of simultaneously consulting for the Morgan Group as analysts. Morgan Group was starting to ramp up again on the development side. And then once we closed that sale, we, we transitioned full-time to Morgan Group. And so that's where I, I've been now for, I think, eight or nine years, just kind of working my way up from development associate to city partner to regional partner. Um, and now I'm an executive vice president and oversee some development as well as uh, an acquisitions business that we started a few years ago. That sounds like a great journey of, of progressive climbing and increasing of responsibilities. Can you tell us a little bit about the Morgan Group and what you do? Sure. So we're, like I mentioned kind of at the beginning, we're, we are a family-owned, multifamily business. The primary focus has been development. And, and now, as I mentioned, we're, we're getting more active on the acquisition side. Um, we're, we're based in Houston, starting so my grandfather actually started the company okay. he came over from europe as a holocaust survivor after the after world war ii and basically came over with nothing no money didn't know any english has basically had an american dream type story started out as a janitor in a shoe store and through kind of a series of entrepreneurial ventures ultimately ended up in houston and ultimately after you know, getting into different small businesses kind of fell into real estate. His his last business was a, a food distribution business that he sold and kept the real estate. And I think that's when a light bulb went off that he didn't need to be working around the clock and he could be collecting rent. And so he started walking job sites in Houston and, and basically taught himself the construction business. And so my grandfather built 
all different types of, of real estate properties in and around Houston. And my dad is is one of five kids and they grew up around real estate as kind of their weekend and summer jobs. And so he kind of always had real estate happening in the background. And then towards the end of my grandfather's career, he, he was more focused on multifamily. And so that that was kind of when, when my dad, so my grandfather retired in early 80s. And then my dad got started in the late 80s. And, and he um, shifted the focus to solely multifamily. That's right. He shifted the, fo- the focus solely to multifamily as well as decided to expand geographically. I think having seen the 80s crash in Houston and the oil crash in Houston, one of his takeaways from that was that it, it's really important to be diversified uh, geographically. So from late 80s till the great financial crisis, built in 11 different markets across the country, primarily with institutional capital on a uh, merchant build strategy. And so and my, my dad's background is construction. So we, we've always been vertically integrated with construction and, and property okay. management. And then our, our four biggest markets historically have been uh, Colorado, Texas, California, and Florida. Um, and then starting in 2011 or so with this cycle, we've kind of shifted focus a little bit and, and decided we want to be not just building and selling everything, but we also want to build a longer term portfolio. So we've been, we've been focused on that. And yeah, so we, we now have, uh, we're up to about 8,000 units that we manage and four to 5,000 of those that we own. So we're the, by keeping more of our deals longer term, we're, we're the biggest we've ever been. And, and today we're, we're active in Texas, Colorado, Arizona, and Florida. Very interesting. I want to go back to a couple of things that, that you mentioned. You said so you're vertically integrated with construction in-house as well as property management in-house. Having the construction in-house, that has always been the case. And do you build just for yourself or does your construction arm of your company also build for other developers? Yeah, you, you know, today we've just built for ourselves, but it, it's something that we have talked about and kind of considered to kind of to bounce around. So, so far it's been, it's been just for ourselves. Okay. And with same with the, with the property management. You know, pro- property management, we, we do do third party. And so I'd say about half of our business on the management side is, is third party management. Okay. Another thing I want to go back to that I thought was very interesting that you mentioned that you've traditionally been a ground up development company, but then now you're, you're also looking more at acquisitions. I find that interesting because a lot of what I've been hearing from other people that we've had on the show and just other realistic conversations, and this may be conversations leading since a few months ago, 2019, before the impact of the coronavirus and how this is changing a lot of things. But a lot of people who had been focused in acquisitions in recent years as to more recently been trying to transition into ground up development. And what you just mentioned seems to be the opposite. Yeah. You know, maybe it's one of those scenarios where the grass is greener on the other side until you get there. (laughs) But I think in in terms of acquisitions, and I think, you know, we're now in our 60th year, and I think you kind of learn something through past experience and through every cycle. And one of our lessons coming out of the last cycle was, you know, that, again, timing is everything. And we had deals last cycle that we sold and, and did sign on. But the group coming in to acquire the asset, just because their timing was so good at acquisition, they made more money than we did because, mm-hmm. uh, again, their, their timing was good. And so 
Mm-hmm. Acquisitions is obviously a lot less risky than development. You're taking no construction risk. You're taking no timing risk. You can lock an interest rate. You have cash flow already in place. On development, you know, you're largely going off of your underwriting and you're going to be opening up two to three years down the road. And, you know, nobody would have guessed that coronavirus was going to be here in, in spring of 2020 when you started a project two years ago. Yeah. So with acquisitions is certainly less risky. And as our companies continue to evolve, we're, we're shifting from a multifamily development company to a multifamily investment company. Okay. And so the way I think about acquisitions is it's another tool in our toolkit. And if we believe that acquiring is more attractive on a relative basis than development, we can acquire. Okay. And so, like I mentioned, we, we've kind of got into that space a few years ago. We've made like three or four acquisitions now. And we're, we're actually really optimistic about the acquisitions landscape early in the cycle. So as we kind of look forward, we actually think there might be pretty compelling opportunities early in the cycle on the acquisition side of things. So when you say acquisition, are you talking about purchasing stabilized class A assets or are you talking more about going in and buying older properties and the more, more of the value add approach? It could be either. It could be either. I mean, we're not, we're not interested in buying something stabilized that has no upside. So mm-hmm. we might buy something stabilized where we think there's market upside, where we think you know, there's going to be rent growth due to fundamentals or it could be value add, but we are, we are focused on class A locations. So we're not going in and, and buying like that property that I first mentioned that we did in, a- in A-Leaf, Texas, like that, mm-hmm. that wouldn't be a property that Morgan Group would go after, but we would look at, you know, value add of a, a 90s vintage or a 2000s vintage property mm-hmm. that's in an, an A-plus location. Okay. What I find interesting is that um, as you were saying, the ground up development certainly is a lot riskier, but it also requires a lot more know-how and a lot more technical knowledge and expertise, which you already have developed. I feel that that's a very strong competitive advantage for the Morgan Group, whereas in acquisitions, you're basically competing with anybody who has capital and not necessarily so if you're focusing more on value add, but if you're buying class A stabilized assets, um, you're pretty much competing with anybody who has the capital that wants to purchase a certain cash flow investment almost. Yeah, no, no question. But we think by having both, it actually makes us smarter in making decisions. So mm-hmm. for instance, if we were going to build a deal in a market, we know what replacement cost is and we know what, how hard it is to get the zoning we know some of those things. So if we see an acquisition and you know maybe we think it's below replacement cost or maybe we know that something's changing in the zoning code or zoning's going to be very difficult to get, on a relative basis, we might decide that acquiring in that sub-market is more attractive than the development risk. Yeah, that does make sense. So you mentioned the four main markets you're in are Arizona, Florida, Colorado, and Texas. How, right. do, how do those markets compare with each other or how, or better said, how do Arizona, Florida, and Colorado compare to Texas? You know, it's, it's a good question. And even Texas needs to be kind of separated because, you know, I think the different markets in Texas are, are all very unique. And, you know, Houston, for instance, is highly correlated to oil. And our outlook on Houston is very different than our outlook on Austin, as an example. But I would, I would say more importantly than how they differ, the reason we like those markets is 
we're bullish on those markets short term and long term in terms of population growth and job growth. And so if you look at the whole country and you kind of see how, you know, the the percentage of growth of the U.S., those four states have outsized growth relative to the rest of the country. Yeah, exactly. And job growth is really what drives demand. And so in Arizona, for instance, you know, Phoenix has been a huge winner this cycle and really later this cycle. And a lot of that is benefiting from people living, leaving, living in, in LA and San Francisco and, and leaving to, to go to Phoenix. Denver's been another winner that we continue to see, you know, be, op, op, be optimistic and bullish on just given, you know, proximity to the mountains and, and great weather and all the sunshine there and, and has had fantastic job growth. Austin, same way yep. in Dallas. Uh, you know, Dallas is a market that we've actually surprisingly never, never done a deal in, but I have a feeling that that's going to be changing soon. Dallas has been a terrific market this cycle too. And, yeah. and then Florida has been a tremendous market for us. That's where we are most active today. Our, our biggest office outside of Houston is in Miami. And Evan, who's the friend of mine I was mentioning earlier in my story, who, who we left our jobs together in New York, he is still with Morgan Group and he has been running our Florida office. So he is based in Miami and, and today we're active in Tampa, Orlando, Miami, and Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, that, those four markets, as, as you've mentioned, definitely some of the highest population growth and job growth markets in the U.S. And also, if I'm not mistaken, all four of them are, are what you would consider business-friendly states. That's right. Yeah, and I, I think that's very important. I think, you know, just following the news, which can be certainly overwhelming right now, I feel like more than ever, you're really seeing the difference of state politics, particularly around coronavirus and reopening policies. And I think the Elon Musk recent example in the news, you know, talking about or threatening to leave California, you know, he, he's obviously outspoken and, and, you know, a public figure, but I would guess there's a lot of people that feel the same way Elon Musk does. And, you know, if unfortunately they've, they've got business challenges or end up closing their businesses, I, I do see a lot of businesses. This could be kind of the last straw. And, and I think that states like Colorado and Florida and Texas and Arizona could be the beneficiaries of that. For sure. So, Philip, what is the process that you go through when sourcing uh, new opportunities or how do you source new opportunities are you constantly looking for land in order to build on or how does the process of a new development come about yeah you know it's you've always got to be looking you've always got to be building your network turning over a lot of rocks you know i, I think given the change we're going through right now communication is always important in our business and not just talking to the brokers, but talking to peers. And we're all just trying to form kind of opinions. And so I think it's more important now than ever, but you source through any and all ways. I mean, you're sourcing through brokers you have relationships with, you're sourcing through just people in your personal network that might know somebody that might know somebody. And, and it's just, I'd say just building the biggest network you possibly can. And then over time you start to, I think, you know, be able to kind of figure out what, what smells like an opportunity and what doesn't. But sourcing deals is, is I think, the, the most fun part of the business. So 
Are you constantly looking for land and do you have multifamily brokers come to you and say, hey, there's an opportunity, there's a seller that's selling this piece of land that looks like a property that would work for multifamily? Is that how generally you come across most of your land opportunities? I wouldn't say most. I'd say a portion, you know, maybe it's 25 to 50%, but a lot of them are, are off market or just kind of relationship driven. So with directly and, with with the with a landowner, yeah, directly with the landowner or a friend of a landowner, or you know, you're just kind of through your social network. And, and the other thing that's kind of interesting is, I feel like the longer you're in the business, the more history you get with owners and land sites. And so something that you've kind of always been aware of, you know, and and then years go by, and all of a sudden it's now for sale, and you've already kind of had that relationship. So. I feel like deals just kind of come and go and this deal that you worked on four years ago and they didn't transact for whatever reason, you know, now the seller's ready to transact and you've already kind of formed a relationship with, with the seller. So there's no kind of simple, easy formula. Yeah. So it, it can be, I mean, brokers for sure are, are involved in a, in a lot of transactions, but not all of them. Yeah. So when you do get a, piece of property either sent to you by a broker or by another relationship, what is the first thing that you look at or that you look for or the first questions that you ask to see if the property is a good option for you to put a multifamily building there? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing you do, because you, know, you, you see so many opportunities, is, is probably just like a back of the envelope or just kind of a smell test. Mm-hmm. So you know, one, is it is it in a market that we are in? And, and assuming it's in a market we're in, are there class A properties around it? And if so, how are those properties performing? And then once we know that, we, we generally kind of know metrics. So we, we would know, for instance, if there's a site in uh, Miami, Florida, and, you know, we can see that a property was built a year ago and their rents aren't high enough to justify new development because we generally know what construction costs are. And so we try to have pretty quick answers as to whether it's interesting and worth digging into further or whether it's not. So we can kind of give a a quick note to, and I think some of that just comes with time. And then once it does sound interesting, then we kind of put together, you know, a more detailed underwriting. We pull rent comps mainly. We generally know what expenses are, Property taxes is an important part of, of underwriting. And then construction costs, because we're vertically integrated, we have a pretty good handle on, on where construction costs are in each of our markets for, for different product types. And so we can kind of plug something in. And then, you know, construction costs is really the, the biggest measure. And as we get further into due diligence, we're constantly kind of refreshing our assumptions on, on construction costs. Okay. And are there any red flags or deal breakers that you look for in terms of the property itself, like the physical land, any issues with the dirt that you look for? Yeah, I mean, I'd say for us, just given our size, if the deal's too small, that's kind of or either too small or too big. So if there's a, it happens pretty frequently where there's a seller that, you know, wants to sell too big of a site and it would be 600 units. And that's just, that's just really tough to capitalize because it's too many units. And so in some cases we'll try to work with that seller and say, let us, let us do a phase land takedown and do phase one and then phase two, if, if it makes sense. 
And then the opposite of that is also true. There could be a case where it's a great property. And this, this happens really frequently. You know, there's a great property and, you know, in, in a great location like in Houston, you know, take Galleria location, but it's, you know, 20,000 square feet. It's, it's really small. And so your option is to build like a needle building, which would be high rise, which today doesn't, doesn't make sense in Houston. Or you can maybe build, you know, 50 units on it. And for us, we just don't get the same operating efficiencies or construction efficiencies building too small of a project. For sure. Let's talk, Philip, about one of your most recent projects in Houston, or I think it's one of your most recent projects, the Pearl Marketplace in Midtown. It's a project that I know. It's a very beautiful project, beautiful units. It, it's, it has a brand new Whole Foods in the first floor. And I know that that property was not an easy development. I know there's no such thing as an easy development, but I know that that project had a couple obstacles in particular that you had to work through. So can you tell us about this, the story behind that development? Yeah. And I, honestly, every, every development has a story and, and there's shorter versions and longer versions, but that, that one certainly has a story. So that property, actually friends of ours used to own the property before, and we had tried to acquire the land because we'd actually built the property right across the street. We had talked about a joint venture with the family, ended up, we, we couldn't get a, a deal that made sense for both sides. It actually was under contract to a different developer that had previously done a deal with Whole Foods as, as a tenant. Then that deal ended up falling through. Opportunity came back and we decided that it was too complicated for a joint venture again, but we would just go ahead and, and close on the property. So we purchased the land. When we closed on it, the thinking was to replicate a project we built across the street. And it was going to be about 150 units a podium project, wood frame construction, and then combined with what we'd done across the street, we'd have two properties, 300 units, and have a, a more efficient uh, layout there. Once we'd closed on the property, there was actually, so it was surrounded by four streets, and then across one of the streets was a half parking lot, actually for Damien's restaurant that was right there. And so we noticed there was a, a sign up for the owner that was looking to lease the parking lot. And through many discussions with the owner of that property, we ultimately came to terms to put that land under contract. And so when we did that, we went through a process with the city of Houston that, that's called the joint referral process. And you basically have to go through and try to close the street. And so that you get an appraisal on the street value. The city checks with fire departments and other departments, utilities, just to make sure, you know, traffic, just to make sure that in fact, the city would be open to, to selling the street and what that looks like. And wow. it just so happened that that street had really minimal traffic, actually dead ends one block later. And so the city decided they could part with it. And so we ended up piecing together three properties. And the key to that was the reason why Whole Foods had kind of not been interested previously is this was before their 365 concept. And so they had a footprint kind of much like HEB does of, you know, we need a store to be at least this size and we need at least, at least this much parking. And so we were able to grow the site from roughly 50,000 feet to 90,000 feet. And by doing that, the store actually laid out for Whole Foods. And so we ended up, all, you know, this, all this is taking time, you know, probably took us, I guess it's three to four years from closing the property to actually breaking ground. I mean, this, this was a, a long time project for sure probably took years off my life. But um, <laughs> anyway, once we kind of pieced it all together, 
Whole Foods, you know, had a, a big tenant like that, a sophisticated tenant like that. I mean, they've got their their own process to run, right? So they've got to do their own underwriting, their own store layouts. They've got their own committees to go through for approval. And essentially, it became a a JV development, and and we were kind of working on the plans alongside Whole Foods and approving elevations together and, and, you know, how they had, they have shafts that come up through our building. You know, we, we were both concerned about ingress, egress and shared uses. And, and on a tight side, it was, it was, it was certainly a challenge. You know, there were, there were other challenges along the way. We had center point power lines that we had to reroute that were very difficult on the tight side. Were those we had, power lines that were on the street that you purchased? That's right. So there, there were power lines on the street that we purchased. And so we had to go through a plan with Centerpoint to look at how they could reroute those power lines, which was not easy. And on tight sites, you know, there's, there's very minimal land kind of between the street and our property line too. So it, there was, it was challenging. We, we got a setback variance from the city so that we could build up to our property line, which also was, was not an easy process. And then, you know, perhaps most challenging of all, we were going two levels below ground for the parking garage for Whole Foods. And then I think it was pretty soon thereafter, once we had kind of dug out two levels, Hurricane Harvey hit. Wow. And so we essentially served as the detention pond for Midtown Houston and, wow. and filled up like, like a bathtub, a, a, a 90,000 foot two, two level bathtub with water. And our construction team just did a phenomenal, phenomenal job working through those challenges. And so, yeah, the, the property opened, so it's 264 apartment units above a 40,000 square foot uh, grocery store. We started leasing the property about this time last year, and then the grocery store opened November of 2019. And it's been just an awesome property wow. where we've got a, a direct access elevator that goes straight from the unit's it's private access, goes straight from the units down to the store that opens up. That's pretty neat. Um, and yeah, and, the, and the, the lease up's going going really well. I think we're now 70% lease, so getting closer to to uh, stabilized occupancy. And and I think that that's a good example. When we were working on that project, it would have been you know fairly easy to capitalize with an institutional partner, but that that was one that you know we as a company decided to build as a long term hold. So we've partnered with other families to build that one and anticipate that we're going to be holding that for at least 10 years and, and likely a lot longer. I can see why you're transitioning to acquisitions after a process like that, having to <laughs> go through the process of buying a street from the city of Houston. That's not a process I would be excited about going through, certainly. But yeah, I mean, that's I guess that's that's our job as developers. That's for That's why we get paid. But yeah, so the, the property is doing well. And have you had any slowdowns due to the current COVID-19 situation? Yeah, you know, I was actually just, just looking at something on that. So it's, it's been pretty amazing to me how, how resilient our business has been during this. So I was just looking at leasing reports. And we certainly saw a, a big drop off kind of right as shelter in place measures were taking effect. But I mean, we've pretty much shifted seamlessly to virtual leasing. We're now starting to do scheduled tours or, you know, somebody can schedule time to do a self-guided tour that we're starting to roll out at our properties. 
but life is, is moving on and, and people still need apartment homes and um, life events are happening and leases are coming due. And so I think last week was our best leasing week since like early February before the, the pandemic hit. So we're, we're definitely seeing positive trends, our renewals, as you might expect. I think this is going to be, you know, I'm sure April will have been like the highest renewal ratio we've ever had in our company history. I think everybody's understandably so putting off moving if they can or putting off home purchases, which is a big, a big reason we, we end up losing residents. And then we've been, you know, pleasantly surprised, I think, as an industry on collections as well. So I think long term, it's, it's uh, boding well for the future of multifamily. And, you know, we're, I think we're all too nervous to be making projections because they're all being proven wrong because we, we would have guessed that, that May would have looked worse than it actually has. But I think we're all now kind of anxiously awaiting what June looks like. We're anxiously awaiting what reopening the economy looks like. And, you know, hoping to start seeing that weekly unemployment number reversing and going the other way. But in the meantime, it's it's just amazing to see the health and economic, you know, damage that's, that's being done to our country. Yep. What, Philip, the biggest opportunity that you see today in the market or something that has you, that you are keeping a, an eye on on the side or that has you raising an eyebrow, something that you see as a potential interesting opportunity in real estate in the years to come? Yeah, I mean, I, I think right now, I don't think there's any question anymore. This is not going to be a V-shaped recovery. We're certainly in a recession and it, it could be, it looks to be a, a very, very big recession and correction. And, you know, I think there's going to be, again, maybe not too dissimilar from the financial crisis, a, a capital dislocation opportunity. And so that's, we're keeping an eye on that. You know, there's a lot of deals that in under normal circumstances would have transacted and deal volume transactions are pretty much drying up. So we think there could be a buying opportunity. We think there could be a development opportunity. There's going to be a lot fewer starts across the country this year than what we need. And I think the same is going to be the case in 2021. Yep. Yeah, because we're our housing supply has already been tight, right? Our, our housing supply. And now it's going to get even tighter because people are not going to be building as much this year, certainly. Right, right. I, I do think, though, it's it's maybe a little too soon. I think what we're still trying to we'll want to make sure we can see the bottom or have a sense of how bad this gets before we start playing offense. But I, I do think things will get worse still before they get better because, you know, one of the things, you know, during coronavirus, construction pretty much across the country has continued on. It's been deemed an essential service, uh, at least residential construction has. And so, you know, what we're having, I think right now we're at 33 million jobs lost, which means certainly a loss in demand. And at the same time, there's going to be 300,000 or so units that open up in the next 12 months. So I do think shorter term, there's going to be more supply than demand. But on the back side of that, I think it's going to reverse. Where would these people live? I mean, because at the end of the day, we're still having population growth and the same amount of people. So at the end of the day, people, do you think people are just going to live with their families for longer? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of good questions. I don't, I don't know that we know the answers. I certainly think there's going to be more of that. You know, there's going to be more people moving in with their parents or staying with their parents longer or it might have been, you know, roommates were thinking about all getting their own apartment. Maybe they stay together. But the flip side is also true. You know, there, there were probably, you know, 
couples and others that were thinking about buying a house that now are going to put that off for a year as well. Students that are coming home from college and maybe not going back to college in the fall. I think that's, that's a big question mark on, on what that looks like. And so maybe they decide they're going to get an apartment and be out of their parents' house for a year. The other thing I think is interesting too, there was a, a lot of demand coming from companies that were basically furnishing units and putting them on Airbnb. And that business model is essentially broken. And so those types of companies were taking up, you know, in, in some cases, five or, or even more uh, as a percent of buildings. And those units have been given back. So I, I think we're losing that demand. So I, I just think demand will not be what it was a year ago and, and, and certainly not going to keep up with the amount of supply. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. It's hard. It's hard to make predictions now, as as you mentioned earlier. Philip, up next, we have a quick fire round. Just a, qu- a few quick questions. Are you ready? I'll try. Sure. Let's do it. Um, what's a, your favorite book that we likely haven't heard of? Oh, man, that's a tough question. You know, I've, I've been listening to this book on tape right now. That I'm, I'm in the middle of it. It's by Roger Lowenstein. It's Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. Perfect. All right. Next question. Who is the person that you look up to the most in the world of real estate? I'd say a few names. My dad and, and grandfather are certainly two of the top names on that list. I think really intrigued by Sam Zell and I try to listen to him every time he's talking. I think I think he's really fascinating. And then my my boss when I was at CBRE, um, Ethan Penner is another one that I, I follow really closely. There's a lot of a lot of big names there. Mm-hmm. No, but I, I appreciate that answer. What's the single most important skill to have as a developer? I think being open-minded, being very ambitious and curious. Like all all those things are okay. are, are very important. I think you you've always got to continue learning, and you can never think you know all the answers. You've got to be very resourceful as well. For sure. What's Philip's parting piece of advice for our audience? You know, I'd say just always build your network. Uh, you never know what it's going to lead to. Um, Particularly and, in, the, in this business. Yeah, I, I, in, in life especially. I feel like you, you make your own luck, and especially in this business, it's, it's so important. It's, it's, you know, it's really who you know and, and making sure that you, you treat people well and, and uh, protect your reputation with, with everything you can because – that's just so, so, so important. Yeah, that's excellent piece of advice. Philip, it's been a real pleasure having you on here. Thank you very much for sharing all this information with us. How can people reach out to you or how can they learn more about you or about your company and what the Morgan Group does? Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Jorge. This, is, this has been a lot of fun as well. You can go to our website, which is morgangroup.com. Or you can shoot me an email, and my email is philip at morgangroup.com. And it's one Alan Philip. Perfect. Philip, thank you very much again. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a real pleasure. I'm sure a lot of people are going to find a lot of value in this interview as much as I did. Thank you very much, and let's stay in touch. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Jorge. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too.